I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, calling for aid. President Joe Biden makes an unexpected plea regarding aid to both Ukraine and Israel. We have the latest, historic ruling. A federal appeals court answers the question of whether a former president has broad immunity from federal prosecution. What it means for Donald Trump. Decline to sign. Floridians are faced with a life-changing petition. The church responds. And one year later, how the people of Turkey and Syria work to rebuild after what is called the disaster of the century. EWTN correspondent Colin Flynn talks to some victims. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Paul, Mickey and Companions. Our top story tonight, a federal appeals court delivers a significant defeat to former President Donald Trump. A three-judge panel ruled Trump is not immune for crimes he allegedly committed during his presidency related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This rejects Trump's argument that he should not have to go to trial on a criminal indictment accusing him of seeking to overturn the 2020 election. Well, the ruling states presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that as to the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the judiciary could not review. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. The Trump team plans to appeal the ruling. And for more, let's bring in Derek Muller, professor of law at Notre Dame Law School. Derek, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. So how significant is this ruling, and are you surprised? It's a significant ruling. Uh, we've had some of these cases, whether it's from the Nixon administration or the Clinton administration, where we've wondered about the outer bounds of, of suing the president or prosecuting the president or former president. Um, but here we have it sort of square on this decision that the former president has no official immunity and no immunity for those acts that he undertook uh, while president that were in violation of criminal law, at least as alleged by the prosecutors here. And so it's a significant decision. Um, you know, somewhat of a surprise, I suppose, to think about the scope of the opinion. But at oral argument, none of the judges who are on the panel seemed uh, to to embrace his arguments. The district court didn't seem to embrace his arguments, certainly. Uh, it's not clear the United States Supreme Court is going to embrace them. So we might just be in a position where we're going to say, after you leave office, um, there's the potential for prosecution, even for the conduct that you had while you were serving as president. What about the timing of this, Derek? And how could this impact um, President Trump's presidential bid going forward? So the D.C. Circuit issued a decision to say, well, this is what we say. There's no immunity. And we're going to hold off on uh, this decision having effect until Monday, February 12th. Uh, until you have the opportunity, Trump, to appeal that case to the United States Supreme Court, and then we'll let the Supreme Court deal with it. So uh, I think in the very near future, Trump will appeal, and then the Supreme Court will be placed in a position of deciding whether to take the case. And if not taking the case, then it'll send it back and it will proceed for trial. So some uncertainty. We'll wait for the Supreme Court's word ahead. All right. I was going to say, what comes next and final thoughts? Yeah, again, we're going to see the Supreme Court, uh, you know, face this issue. They're already facing an argument this week on whether or not Trump should appear on the Colorado ballot. They're facing other cases about whether or not his conduct could rise to criminal liability in other cases. Um, so they're they're facing a slew of these cases, hot button political cases in a contentious political year uh, as the 2024 election looms. So we'll see what happens. Um, but I'm waiting to see how quickly the Supreme Court moves once they get that petition from former President Trump. Yeah, and we will be keeping an eye on that as well. Derek, thank you so much for insights. Always appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Our President Joe Biden delivers remarks today on the controversial bipartisan border security package. He is urgently calling on lawmakers to get the $118 billion measure to his desk. It is intended to clamp down on illegal border crossings and provide money for Ukraine and Israel. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen? Tracy, the president's speech today was not originally on his public schedule, but then late this morning, in a bit of a surprise, the White House announced the president would be making comments regarding the bill, which for now faces long odds and very vocal opposition from those who say it would only exacerbate the crisis. In the state dining room, President Joe Biden blasts former President Donald Trump for trying to derail the border bill. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. One provision would allow the U.S. government to block migrants from entering the country if more than 4,000 people per day try unlawfully over the course of a week. The bill would also make it harder to claim asylum at the border. And when asked about the hostages in Gaza... This indirectly has a lot to do with the hostage deal and what's going on in the Middle East. And overseas, Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, pushing ahead with another diplomatic tour of the Middle East, in Qatar and Egypt, trying to secure a ceasefire, bring home the hostages, and contain the fighting between Israel and Hamas. This IDF video showing Israeli troops fighting in Gaza City. At a press conference, Blinken saying a proposal was put forward and that Hamas responded tonight. We're reviewing that response now, uh, and I'll be discussing it with the government of Israel tomorrow. The latest Blinken visit comes amid growing concerns in Egypt about Israel's stated intentions to expand the combat in Gaza to areas on the Egyptian border. Egypt has warned that an Israeli deployment along the border would threaten the peace treaty the two countries signed over four decades ago. On Wednesday, Secretary Blinken meets with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, seen here meeting with troops in central Israel on Monday, saying absolute victory is essential. And warning, if there is no absolute victory, the next massacre is only a matter of time. Also tonight, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris continue to crisscross the country pushing their abortion agenda. The vice president, in fact, just made a trip to Savannah, Georgia, marking the third stop on her, quote, fight for a reproductive freedoms tour. If she chooses, she will consult with her pastor, her priest, her rabbi, her imam, but it should not be the government telling her what to do. And during his most recent trip to Las Vegas, President Biden told supporters, quote, I love how Trump is now saying Biden is for abortion on demand. Not true. That's not what Roe v. Wade said. It said there are three trimesters and how it worked. President Biden's support for the restrictions included in Roe v. Wade differs from his party. Democrats have introduced the Women's Health Protection Act that would permit abortion for all nine months of pregnancy. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. While the road ahead for aid to Israel is getting complicated, the House is working on a standalone bill after Speaker Mike Johnson announced that he would bring the measure to the floor. It is now competing against a different version, part of the Senate's foreign aid package. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales reports. Eric? Good evening, Tracy. Yes, this is quite an about face for Speaker Mike Johnson. As we've reported, the House last fall passed a $14 billion Israeli aid bill paid for by taking money away from the IRS. Well, that version has gone nowhere in the Senate. Now, Speaker Johnson is backing a $17 billion bill 
with no set plan to pay for it. He says the situation has gotten much more dangerous and aid to Israel is critical. We need to stand with Israel right now and we cannot wait any longer. And that's why as desperate times call for desperate measures, um, that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, I, I want to say that also last night, the president shockingly uh, threatened a veto of a standalone Israel bill. But members of the House Freedom Caucus are not on board, said Speaker Johnson is surrendering and questioning how it's going to be paid for. They posted, quote, Congress can pay for Israel aid by cutting funding to the United Nations, repealing the IRS expansion, repealing the Department of Commerce slush fund, or ending leftist climate change tax credits. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries claims the Speaker's plan undermines the Senate's bipartisan effort. But even the Senate's $14 billion Israeli aid bill tied with money for Ukraine and new border policies is uncertain. Some senators want conditions on any aid to Israel. We have always said that there will be limits on where we send aid and how that aid is used. That is part of federal law right now. It is also part of our responsibility under international law. Others want separate votes. We should handle all these issues separately, particularly when it comes to Ukraine and Israel. There's different realities on the ground, likelihood of success. There's all kinds of different factors. This idea of lumping everything together in these bills, whether it's on the appropriation side or what we're talking about with the supplemental, I think is flawed. I think that people deserve to know where we stand on these things individually. Well, lawmakers say aid to Israel is a must. What happens next is still unclear. Speaker Mike Johnson will need to, some help from Democrats to pass the bill, and the Senate could wind up taking out the Israeli provisions in the foreign aid bill and have a standalone vote. I'll stay on top of the story. Tracy. Eric, I know you're also following the House impeachment of Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. What's the latest on that? Well, I tell you what, after several hearings, the uh, Republican-controlled House is taking up a formal vote tonight to impeach the DHS secretary. I've learned that several Republicans are going to vote no simply because they say it's hypocritical to impeach Mayorkas after arguing against the same type of action during the Trump administration. Republicans can only lose a few votes tonight. I'll stay on top of that issue as well. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. All right, Eric, thank you. Well, in Nevada, the Super Bowl isn't the only big event taking place this week. Voters in the battleborn state head to the polls today for both the Democratic and Republican presidential primaries. Today's GOP primary will not determine who wins the state's 26 delegates. Following a disagreement, the delegates will be determined later this week. Nikki Haley will appear on today's primary ballot, but not in the caucus. The situation is reversed for President Trump. And to help us unpack all of this and more is Tom Bevan, founder and president of Real Clear Politics. Tom, good to see you again. So this situation, Nevada, is kind of hard to wrap one's head around. Explain to us why there's a primary and a caucus in the state and how and why did this get so complicated? Well, it's been a caucus state for a long time uh, on both sides, actually. Democrats used to caucus as well. Now, the, the state passed a law recently saying that it had to, the state had to hold primaries. Democrats said, great, we'll do a primary. And Republicans said, no, we don't want to do a primary. We want to continue to do a caucus. The, the GOP, Nevada GOP said, we want to continue to do a caucus. So they tried to sue so that they, that they wouldn't have a primary. And the court said, no, you can't, uh, you can't uh, 
overturn this law, but you can restrict the delegates. And so what they've done is they're holding a separate contest. As you mentioned, on Thursday, there will be the caucus, and, and that's the one that's going to count for the delegates that will go to the convention and, and vote for the uh, nominee of the party. Tom, could there be a scenario in which, you know, Nikki Haley wins the primary and Trump the caucus? And if that happens, you know, what happens next? Well, I mean, a, a win in the primary is is merely sort of a, a media creation. I mean, she'll be able to say, I won the Nevada primary, uh, <laughs> but that's about it. It's not going to result in any delegates for her. Uh, it might result in a little bit of good publicity for a couple of days until Donald Trump wins the uh, wins the caucus, which he's he's overwhelmingly favored to do on Thursday. So, um, you know, I don't know how much this is going to you know affect the the trajectory of this race in any way. Yeah, I know everything matters, but I mean, how much does Nevada matter to these candidates, say, compared to you know Iowa or New Hampshire? Not as much. Uh, it's it certainly Iowa and New Hampshire and, and even South Carolina to a certain degree are are the states that really sort of count uh, in the early going. And particularly this year with Nikki Haley staying in and South Carolina being her home state, I think that's going to carry a lot more weight uh, than what goes on uh, out in Nevada. Although I have to say Nevada is going to be a battleground state uh, in the general election. It is an important part of uh, for, for both parties to win that state in a general election setting. Yeah, and Nikki Haley, I want to talk about her a, a little bit more here. She said a number of times that she's in this race for the long haul or at least through Super Tuesday. Tom, why do you think she's hanging in for so long? I mean, what is behind the strategy? Well, that depends on who you ask. I mean, there are plenty of people who say, listen, there have only been, you know, uh, a couple hundred thousand Republicans who voted out of the millions across the country. Let these contests play out. There's no harm in that. Others say Nikki Haley is just staying in. Uh, in the event that Donald Trump is convicted on one of these multiple charges that he's facing in courtrooms across the country, uh, because the data seems to indicate that that would be a problem for Trump, maybe not in a in a primary, but certainly in a general election. Um, so, but but again, she's not anywhere near being uh, close to being the nominee. I mean, she just doesn't really have a path of any kind, and I think that's going to be ultimately um, whether she stays in for another two weeks or or two months. Um, you know, it's really, I think, in most people's estimates, just a fool's errand. Tom, quick, quickly, I want to ask you about this. Uh, you know the ruling today against uh, former President Trump and his immunity. How much of an impact do you think that's going to have on his supporters, if at all? I don't think it's going to have an impact on his supporters. They're locked in uh, all the way. I don't think even a conviction uh, would have any impact on his supporters. Would it have an impact on, on moderates, on independents, again, in a general election setting? Sure, but but a lot of folks, particularly on the Republican side, and and certainly those who are hardcore Trump supporters, don't feel like these these prosecutions really have any legitimacy. They're all political uh, in nature, and I think for that reason, it wouldn't have any impact at all. All right, Tom, thanks so much. Always appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tracy. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including high stakes case analysis of how pro-lifers in Florida are taking a stand against a pro-abortion ballot measure. And from the ground up, a report from Turkey one year after the devastating earthquake. to the Florida Supreme Court tomorrow. It centers around whether residents will get to vote in November on a new state law that guarantees abortion access. A ballot measure is titled Amendment to Limit Government Interference with Abortion, reading that no law shall prohibit 
penalize, delay, or restrict abortion before viability or, when necessary, to protect the patient's health as determined by the patient's health care provider. The court must decide whether the language meets state rules. And for more on this, let's bring in Dr. Gracie Christie. She is a radiologist, a senior fellow for the Catholic Association, and host of the nationally syndicated radio show, Conversations with Consequences. Dr. Christy, great to see you as always. So tell us more about this proposed amendment. What is the main goal and why now? Well, the proposed amendment is like many we've seen all across the different states, which is to make abortion completely unfettered and untrammeled through all 40 weeks of pregnancy and to deny women all sorts of protections that they have against unscrupulous and bad actors out, out there in the abortion landscape, of which there are so many. Um, the way that the ballot amendment is um, worded is very vague. The, the word health is not, uh, it's not uh, defined, and neither is the word health provider. There's a lot of gray space in there, and our AG, Ashley Moody, is going to be arguing that case tomorrow before the Supreme Court. I hope that all of America will be praying along with Florida on this. Yeah, we need to, indeed. I know you wrote an op-ed for townhall.com uh, titled Protect Life, Decline to Sign. In it, you say the mm -hmm. proposed amendment will do the opposite of keeping women safe. Talk to us more about that. So one of the things that the proposed amendment does is that it immediately takes away any kind of common sense safety regulation around abortion. For instance, the fact that an abortion should be done by a, a physician. This way, with now, uh, according to this ballot amendment, anybody could perform an abortion. For instance, a girl could go to a Planned Parenthood office and be given the chemical abortion pill or a prescription for the pill by uh, the receptionist. So there is no clinical oversight at all over something that is a very dangerous, either surgical or a chemical procedure. So women and girls are very much in danger with this kind of amendment. We have about a minute left or so, but quickly, I, I do want to get the, to this. Uh, Ex-Lieutenant Governor Jennifer Carroll and a group of former GOP officials wrote a brief supporting the proposed amendment. It argued uh, that Floridians should be allowed to decide for themselves what the fundamental law should be. How would you respond to that as a medical doctor and as a Catholic? I would say that this amendment actually takes away the ability of Floridians to decide for them to decide for themselves because it opens up every single possibility and doesn't give women any protections. The regular legislative way in which we as a state decide what kinds of regulations we want around abortion, that's the proper way to give people a way to decide, not to just open the floodgates to every unscrupulous big abortion provider up there who will come rushing to Florida to hurt not only babies, but women and girls. Now, Dr. Christie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this with us. We appreciate it. God bless. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, officials in Los Angeles say they have responded to more than 300 mudslides amid record-setting rain that caused widespread flooding. Southern California was bombarded with nearly half of its seasonal rainfall in just two days. Officials say that floodwaters carried mud, rocks, and household objects through Los Angeles, with one resident saying that it looked like a river that had been there for years. No casualties have been reported so far, and the storms have begun to ease. Well, today marks the one-year anniversary of a devastating earthquake in Turkey near the Syrian border that killed more than 53,000 people. Locals have dubbed it the disaster of the century. And Turkey's president visited the epicenter of the quake to inspect the efforts to rebuild the city. 
EWTN Vatican News correspondent Colin Flynn has more. Good evening, Tracy. It was at 4.17 a.m. exactly a year ago today that a huge 7.8 earthquake completely destroyed large areas of southern Turkey and northern Syria. 60,000 people died and suddenly millions of people were left homeless. I was there last week visiting some of the worst affected regions for an upcoming report being broadcast this Friday on EWTN News In Depth. We saw the devastating effects of this earthquake, buildings in rubble, towns almost completely annihilated and people left with very little hope. And even though a year has passed, there is still so much need. Caritas International has been distributing thousands of food parcels, hygiene packs, drinking water, mattresses, blankets and so on. But it still isn't enough. They simply do not have the supplies they need to meet the ever-increasing demand. Today, two million people are living in large camps that were built in a hurry for those displaced by the earthquake. And as you'll see in our report this Friday, we went to one of the camps filled with tents and prefabricated rooms where we talked to Syrian refugees. These are people who had fled the war 10 years ago, had made a life in Turkey, and now their life is on hold. They, along with so many others, are now just waiting for their houses to be rebuilt and for them to have a home once again. We filmed the great work being done by organizations like Malteser International who are trying to bring aid to the affected areas. Many of the workers who accompanied us had lost loved ones themselves in the earthquake. One woman had tears in her eyes as we were filming a spot where her parents' apartment building once stood. She told us the heartbreaking story of how her mother escaped the earthquake, but her father did not. For days, they heard her dad's cries from deep inside the rubble, and then the cries stopped. As the wars in Ukraine and Gaza dominate the headlines, Malteser International and Caritas feel that the stories from this earthquake and the victims are being overshadowed. They want to make sure that these people who have suffered so much and have so little are not forgotten. In Rome, Colm Flynn, EWTN News Nightly. And we continue to keep them in our prayers. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, he's worth missing. We remember the beloved country music star Toby Keith and his celebrated love for the United States. Tributes continue pouring in for country music star Toby Keith following his death after a battle with stomach cancer. The famed singer and songwriter grew to popularity with his patriotic songs and pro-America messages. He even went on 11 USO tours to visit and play for troops overseas and raised millions for charity during his career. His family said, quote, he fought his fight with grace and courage. Toby Keith was 62 years old. We reported during yesterday's broadcast that Lego was producing a set based on Notre Dame Cathedral. The toy company responded, saying that it has not made an announcement about new products. Lego also says that it does not comment on rumors nor speculation regarding possible new products. While reaction continues to pour into the news that King Charles III is stepping away from some public duties amid treatment for cancer. Cardinal Vincent Nichols of Westminster is offering prayers for the king. Cardinal Nichols took part in last spring's coronation, becoming the first Catholic leader to take part 
since the Reformation. He offered a blessing after the crowning of the king. Well, finally tonight, a homework assignment from a freshman year of high school was finally turned in 32 years later. In 1992, students at Mattituck High School on Long Island wrote a note inside of a bottle, then they threw it into the ocean. Recently, that bottle was discovered in a marsh on Long Island. The finding led to a social media post and a flood of memories about the teacher who gave that assignment. The teacher died last year. His son says one of his favorite assignments was to have students write a message in a bottle. Very special. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.